Grant, thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. Yeah, it's, uh, we've got an interesting topic coming up, but um, before we before we jump into your background, I, I noticed I've been following you on, I think it was Instagram. It looks like you built your own gym in the past few months. Is that is that right? It is right. And you bringing up that topic first is dangerous because I could, I could speak <laughs> our whole time about that. But uh, yeah, I live on a little bit of land out here in West Texas, and we recently built a big... Um, about 1,800 square foot metal building in our backyard that's primarily a gym uh, with a little corner for traditional garage items. Um, so I'm still filling the inside, but very excited to to have that space. Yeah, that's that's like a dream of mine. I'm actually trying to find like a place that has like a like a garage or I don't know, maybe you say garage, but uh, yes, <laughs> uh, for for that like I don't know, like a couple of meters by a couple of meters, literally that you fit like one, maybe two cars in to try and do something like that. I, I live in, in Dublin in Ireland and it's like real estate is extremely expensive, but there's not a huge amount of gyms either, I guess, because they're not probably that profitable to have a, yeah. a really well-equipped gym in the city center. So, um, so yeah, I've been, I, I would love to have something like that. I mean, I could probably move down to the countryside, but it's like, yeah, it's, it's not really something people do. Um, if you're, if you're from the city. So yeah, it, it just looks, it just looks awesome. And, uh, it's cool the way you can kind of put your own stuff in it. Do you do you plan to like use that as like commercially to get like people in, or is that purely just for like yourself? Uh, myself, family, friends. So no, I don't plan on using yeah. it commercially. Just kind of um, we were able to do it and wanted to do it, so we we're uh, yeah happy to nice. have that that structure. And and uh, would that be something that you could do like research out of, or is it not like? Uh, if I got it approved by the IRB, so the Institutional yeah. Review Board, the yeah. kind of ethics board for human research, if I got it approved, you can do offsite data collection. Uh, as of now, I don't have anything in there that we don't also have um, up here at Texas Tech. So I'll mm. probably keep it strictly um, personal and, and for fun. And uh, my kids are out there with me learning to lift, uh, you know, friends nice. come by. So, uh, yeah, right now it's it's really just kind of uh, supporting that hobby. Nice. Yeah. That's uh yeah, it looks really cool anyway. So thank yeah, you. Did you want to let people know a little bit about yourself? I've been following your work for a while, but it'd be, be good to let people know what you do, who you are and uh, some of the work you do. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So I'm Grant Tinsley. I'm an associate professor at Texas Tech University, um, which is in Lubbock, Texas in the United States. I've been here for about five and a half years uh, and I came here right after finishing my PhD at Baylor University, also in Texas. Uh, and there I studied kinesiology and exercise nutrition. Uh, prior to that, I completed degrees in physiology, nutritional sciences, and biomedical sciences. Um, kind of outside those uh, traditional academic degrees, I'm a, a certified strength conditioning specialist um, and a sports nutritionist as well. Um, I enjoy, you know, from our, our brief discussion about the shop gym in the backyard, uh, it's already evident, but I enjoy lifting weights as a hobby. I, I do sort of a mix of um, bodybuilding and powerlifting style workouts, but really just for fun. I don't compete in either of those uh, endeavors. So my laboratory here, I currently have 11 students in my lab. Um, so four PhD students, three master's students, um, and four undergraduate students. We conduct a variety of research studies in the realm of sports nutrition, um, body composition assessment methods, which I think we'll get into today, and then also some studies related to sort of meal timing and frequency, particularly through uh, intermittent fasting programs. And kind of our, our population of focus is primarily active individuals. All our exercise studies involve resistance exercise or resistance training um, for our longitudinal studies. 
And um, yeah, I think that's about it about me. Mm, yeah, that's uh, really interesting, especially the topic around, uh, you know, body composition assessment. Um, and like w- one thing that I, I think I've spoke to pe- people previously on is like, I, I, I don't know if they do it in the US, but like ISAC, it's a, you know, the, the accreditation. I did, yes. the, I, I did that like last summer. And when you're looking at like normative data of like, of like what, what a play, what an elite athlete should be. And like, for example, Cristiano Ronaldo, everybody knows who he is, right? I think he's yeah. the second most following on Instagram behind, I don't know who was the first is. Anyway. Uh, Adam McDonald, um, I think is number one. Yeah. <laughs> yeah I don't Sorry. Know him. Um, yeah. So, um, yeah. So like w- Cristiano Ronaldo, for example, he's like shredded, like uh, probably 9% body fat and he he looks great. And he's like the pinnacle of what people think sports players should be look like. And and that's the same for other sports. So it's like, you know, should this player be this body fat and this body composition in order to perform the best? So any, any sports, NFL, basketball, obviously split up the positions, but I, I always wondered is like, is that more so survivorship bias? And actually the reason that he looks like that and is, is, is so great is because he can actually perform at that body fat percentage. And the only reason I say that is because I, I've, I'm a, I compete in natural bodybuilding and I've been that lean and leaner and I just know how crap I feel. And it's like, I don't think I'd perform any better, even if I got like, say my calories back up, you know, if I, if I could somehow psychologically stay that lean and get my calories up, which I don't think I could, but if I could, and I was not in a state of what we call relative energy deficiency, I don't think I would be performing any better than if I was uh, like 18, 17% body fat. So it's like having that goal of everybody who wants to be number one in the sport, besides bodybuilding, obviously, because you have to be lean. Um, but in that sport, should they get to this body fat and then they'll be actually at their best. So that's something that's like uh, an interesting topic for me around kind of body composition analysis. What, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, it, it's really interesting. I have a um, friend, colleague here in the United States, Sean Arndt, who's, who's spoken on this topic a lot because he's worked in, in the university setting with sports science and with athletes at the collegiate level. And um, there and elsewhere, we see so many athletes who equate a, a better body composition, say aesthetically or leanness, muscularity, um, with directly with improved sport performance. Um, and it is interesting when you look at the professional level because you see across sports, you see wide disparities in body composition. Um, of course, there, there are some commonalities, say, for a given position in a given sport. But, yeah, you have some individuals, um, as you mentioned, who you know, fully look the part we expect in terms of uh, their body composition and, and others who don't, but they're, they're still performing at the highest level. So I think athletes um, and probably even their, you know, coaches and in some cases, nutritionists, um, strength coaches and so on uh, can, can chase a certain body composition with the, the assumption that, oh, if I look like this, that means I'll be at peak performance. Um, but as you just said, bodybuilding provides a nice example of a time where when someone looks their best, um, physique wise, and of course, relative to the sport, uh, you know, if you were to take him to the gym and say, let's, let's test your one repetition maximum on all these mm-hmm. lists and test your performance, it'd be a time of probably their, their lowest performance, arguably. So, um, you know, it, it is, I think, highly individual. There are some individuals who can perform at a body composition that uh, matches people's perceptions. There are others that if they're pushed towards that, uh, their, their performance can drop precipitously. So, 
Yeah, I think that that's where you need a definitely evidence-based practitioner, someone who understands um, the individual nature of a, a particular person's kind of body composition and performance relationship. Because there are times we know where we might want to modify body composition mm. uh, in a way that would improve performance. So that's increasing lean mass, um, decreasing fat mass, and so on. But past a certain point, you get into the realm of um, kind of chasing something unnecessarily that's not directly related to sport performance and that could ultimately harm mm. harm the athlete's uh, success. Yeah, I, I, I work with some clients as well that that play sports, and uh, most of the time they they also want to look better. And, and I often say, like, you do know that if you if you want to look better and you want to perform better, they're not mutually inclusive. If you want to get lean and look good on the beach, that's fine, but it's not necessarily going to improve your sport performance. So just, you know, making sure that you know that, um, because I think if you look at a lot of sports people, they probably aren't, uh, well, they're definitely not, they don't look like bodybuilders. Um, and even like, I don't know if you follow like the NBA, but you think of like Zion Williams, yeah. um, he's, you know, I don't know what, he's like 300 and some of the pounds. Yeah. <laughs> like, I know he's like it's six nine, but yeah. Um, yeah. So in terms of then body composition assessment tools, we've, we've, I suppose when most people who are like personal trainers or have worked with a personal trainer, they may have come across things like skin fold calipers, um, like the little plastic ones you buy on Amazon for like 12, 12 euros or whatever, yeah. or $12. And they may have also come across things like, um, scales such as like I've got in my bathroom, which is a, F a Fitbit scales and you stand on it and tells me that I'm nearly 30% body fat, which is, seems like a bit high, but, uh, <laughs> um, I think maybe live it off. Um, unless I've, unless I've lost quite a bit of muscle since I last competed. Um, and, and then there's other things like maybe people aren't familiar with, but they may have heard of them, um, such as like MRI. They may have heard that um, for, for other medical reasons or DEXA scans. They may have heard of, of these things. Um, so it would be good to kind of get your, your overview of, of what the differences are, like perhaps what compartment models, different compartment models mean, and perhaps maybe some of the accuracies and, uh, and maybe the, how, how, practical or how available some of these methods are to the people? Yeah. So several great questions there. There's a lot to unpack, so I'll get started, but feel free to redirect me if mm. I uh, wander too far into the weeds anywhere. So yeah, I'll start, since you mentioned the compartments, I'll start with kind of the, the big picture background and sort of theory behind body composition. So um, we know that we can assess our body mass or our body weight reliably, even with the, the cheap scale, say you have in your bathroom, others have access to, um, th those are all pretty good because it's a pretty simple measurement we're taking, just body mass. So body composition is sort of everything beyond that. So if we don't want to group all of our body mass together, which is understandable because we have lots of things going on in our, on in our body, um, which we'll talk about. Uh, if we don't want to group all that together, the questions of body composition assessment are how do we rightly divide and describe what's contained in the body. So the vast majority of methods people have access to, uh, including many even in a research setting, are what are called a two-compartment model. Um, this is a type of molecular level assessment, which sounds really advanced, even though some of these techniques aren't don't seem particularly advanced. But all that means is these devices are trying to separate all the molecules in your body uh, into fat molecules and non-fat molecules. Uh, and something important, important to realize here is that uh, this does not really take anatomy into account. 
So we're trying to separate, we're trying to group all the fat molecules wherever they occur. So lots of this will be in adipose tissue, but there will be some intramuscular triglycerides, other components that will be part of these fat molecules. And then we're trying to take all the non-fat molecules, which the largest component of that would be water. Um, so we think of water lean mass, but we also have some water content in our adipose tissue and elsewhere. So the point here being that we're not talking about anatomy, we're just talking about all the molecules of fat, that group together is called fat mass. Everything else is grouped together as fat-free mass. So this is a two-compartment model, grouping all molecules into fat mass, fat-free mass. Um, fat-free mass is a very diverse component. So we have water, we have bone mineral, soft tissue minerals, some minerals floating around in fluid, protein, um, glycogen, and so on. So there is some error in these models based on the fact that we have to assume what proportions these components of fat-free mass exist in. So we assume everyone has a particular percentage of protein, water, mineral, and so on. Uh, and those assumptions are, have been established by older research using cadavers where they can sort of chemically di dissect someone's body uh, and determine these proportions. Um, however, that may, you as an individual or even groups of individuals, say a particular um, athletic team, uh, may or may not abide by these uh, kind of assumed values. Um, so examples of the, the two compartment model, really anything that's giving you just a body fat percentage is typically a two compartment model in terms of what people have access to. Um, skin folds are a little unique for a reason I'll talk about in a, a second, but the way most people use them, that ends up being a two compartment model where you have a body fat percentage that's really just your fat mass divided by your total body mass um, times 100. Um, other methods, the bioimpedance scale, biological impedance scale, like the one you mentioned um, in your bathroom, that uses the two compartment model. Uh, even methods like underwater weighing or hydrostatic weighing uh, and air displacement pl plethysmography, which is the BOD pod, those use the two compartment model. Um, and, and a number of other methods do too. Um, Skinful, oh, sorry, did you have a question? I, I was just going to say on those models, so for example, um, the, the one where you mentioned the scales and um, where you stand on them, that the, the accuracy between those and say a bod pod or an underwater weighing I've, I've done a bod pod before and well number one it's it's way more expensive um you, you can actually buy multiple scales for one bod pod scan um is there is there differences in in the accuracy between those because obviously if somebody has to go underwater and you know put all the air of their lungs that's a lot more invasive than saying stand on the scales when you wake up in the morning yes yeah, so in general, the, the bioimpedance scales are a little challenging because you have devices that are $20 and devices that are mm. $14,000. In terms of the consumer-grade devices that are available, um, we actually conducted a study on this very recently, and we're, we're starting the data analysis now. But we purchased um, 15 to 20 of the, the most popular consumer-grade bioimpedance scales, and we brought them in our lab, um, tested a bunch of individuals on these scales, as well as all our best methods, including DEXA, BODPOD, and, and so on. Um, so bioelectrical can impedance, you there, the, can you tell us the results? Um, not quite. So it, it, it really will vary some, uh, okay. there I'll say the individual level error. So the way most people use these scales, it's like one mm -hmm. individual over time assessing themselves. The individual level error is high enough for most of those scales that, uh, you could make an argument that it would be better not to have the information than to have this, this potentially erroneous information mm -hmm. where you're seeing these large ups and downs that aren't accurate. Um, with that said, I also think there are ways you could use that information and just interpret it very cautiously. 
Um, so we'll have yeah. more details, and I'll, I'll definitely um, you know post about that line when it's available. Uh, we have just from our initial look have seen some variability across some of the scales. So there were some. There's one like mid tier device we're a little bit optimistic about that it was a couple hundred dollars, which is expensive. But if you're talking about mm-hmm. you know a practitioner or a coach, it might be something they'd be willing to invest in if it's giving pretty good results as compared to our our very expensive research grade equipment. Mm. Um, but I, I'd I, say I think. I think it's some of those, at least from what I've read, at the higher end of body fat and the lower end, depending on what um, algorithm you use, because obviously the, the body fat goes through some sort of algorithm based on the population, it can skew it, right? It has weird readings at higher ends of body fat and lower ends of body fat, I think. Yes, some devices definitely do uh, in that that issue you just described in, in the research world we call proportional bias, where essentially how accurate a method is varies based on the value of what you're assessing such that, mm. you know, at, at lower body fat, sometimes it's what you describe like at intermediate body fats, a device might be okay, but at the low and high body fats, it has issues mm. um, sometimes in the opposite direction where it would like overestimate body fat in the lean individuals and underestimate body fat in the, those with higher body fat. So um, gotcha. yeah, there are all kinds of issues there asking though about like the bod pod and bioimpedance, um, just as a, a broad sweeping statement, Bod Pod would be viewed as a more accurate device than the consumer grade bioimpedance. Mm. Um, one challenge, though, is since these both are using two compartment models, um, but they operate with different principles. So, as you mentioned, there are algorithms involved in BIA. Uh, what's actually being assessed is is the resistance to a small electrical current that's passed in through it, it, with those scales through a foot and received also mm. at a foot on the scale. Um, that goes through a series of equations with assumptions baked in to, baked in yeah. to give you body fat percentage. Um, bod pod, in contrast, uh, does have a pretty sound uh, principle underneath, which is related to um, the density of the body, but it's still using a two-compartment model. So it's hard, and, and there's some research published like this and other individuals who might say what you said, okay, I have, you know, say, frequent bioimpedance assessments from home and a periodic bod pod assessment. And there's this wide disagreement, how to interpret this um, kind of issue there is that there's quite a bit of error baked into both. Um, and that's why we do some of the research we do. We can take what would really be a, a more gold standard method, which is not a two compartment model, and compare it simultaneously in the same group of people to all these different bioimpedance scales and to bod pod and to higher grade bioimpedance scales and, and so on. Um, so if we were to so build guess- up... Yeah. So just, I, I guess some of the challenges on, on the two compartment models, which is probably what a lot of people would, would use, I would say, and free, like the frequently accessed ones, more so the consumer grade scales, is that you could have, um, you could have very high salt day or meals, which might increase your blood plasma levels and your, your volume of, of blood, or you could have like a high carb week or something like that, which would increase your that would increase your, both of those could increase your fat-free mass, right? Or, or even higher fiber in the diet. Yeah, so those definitely could. And that's in the realm of kind of acute, what we call biological error. So yeah, something that's mm-hmm. happened to your body kind of acutely that would change it. There's also more chronic things. So like if you habitually have a higher percent of your fat-free mass as water than these cadavers did back in the day, you might just systematically have error baked into every assessment you you um, ever take with the two compartment model. So the the part of that that's okay is if you're just looking at kind of trends and tracking in a direction, you might still be able to do that. 
Um, but it might always be inaccurate. It might always show mm. that you're leaner than you actually are or that you're not as lean as you actually are yeah. based on some principle of your body that is relatively static, whether it's related to mineral, protein, water, um, mm. or so on. Uh, so, yeah, multiple components. One, just like you being a unique individual, your body, and then also, as you mentioned, some of these more acute or kind of short-term changes that, that could relate to diet or lifestyle practices that could kind of trick a device into thinking you have more or less, say, fat-free mass than you really do. Mm. Yeah. So then um, building on the, the, the two compartment models, what are the other models that we have that may be a little bit more accurate and break the body up into other components? Yeah. So for the most part, once we move past two compartment models, we are in the realm um, of taking multiple assessments and combining the data through equations. Uh, so a common example would be, say we were talking about bod pod, we had a two compartment model. If we brought someone in the lab, we could perform a bod pod test, um, which would give us uh, their body volume. We could just get their simple body mass from a scale. And then we could use one of our laboratory grade bioimpedance techniques to get their body water. And we would now be able to build what's called a three compartment model. Um, so really, since we have kind of all our fat molecules already, we're really concerned with fat-free mass. And how do we describe that more accurately? Because we've kind of lumped a bunch of things together in the mm. two-compartment model. So typically what we do, the first component we want to pull out from there and kind of look at specifically is water, since it is the largest component. So then a three-compartment model would be all your molecules of fat as one compartment, all your molecules of water as a second compartment. And then the third compartment would be everything else. So it would still include mineral, protein, and glycogen. Um, but we've made that everything else compartment much smaller by specifically yeah. measuring water. Um, from there, you can continue to go on. So the four compartment model, you would typically then pull out bone mineral. So you have fat, water, bone mineral, and then everything else. Uh, and as you continue to add compartments, that everything else just gets smaller and smaller until you've mm. uh, theoretically, you can get to a point where you have six compartments or so and have really looked at each um, kind of distinct category you would like to look at. Mm, so w w often considered, depending on what, what you read, the gold standard, besides besides combining different models together, or sorry, different tools together, would be either DEXO or MRI. Can you talk a little bit about what they do by themselves? Because people often say, oh, I've got a DEXA scan, it's the holy grail, but they may not have combined that with the BIA. Yeah, yes. so I will, um, yeah, so I'll unpack, this is a great discussion point. One, I'll just say on the record, DEXA is really good. If you could only have one one device, I would choose DEXA. However, I, I do take uh, issue, even though you see it everywhere, it's probably taught in classes in, in my department here, that DEXA is the gold standard. It's, it's really not. And if someone's telling you it is, you can ask them, okay, how does it account for body water? This is the, the largest molecular component in the body. Tell, tell me how it does that. And the answer is it doesn't. It's, it's a really good technique. It's an imaging technique, which allows you to look at segmental body composition, um, which can be very valuable, both in athletics and disease risk settings. So it's a great, great technique. We use it as part of our four compartment model for bone because it's very accurate for bone uh, in particular. Um, yeah. So if you need segmental data, I guess you can say in one interpretation, it's a gold standard, but uh, but the contrast with MRI, this is a great point. So DEXA is still operating at the molecular level. So it's still looking at um, molecules uh, in really pixels there because uh, it's an imaging technique, but it, it's, it's kind of grouped in the molecular level. Uh, it's looking at pixels of bone, pixels of fat, and pixels of everything else, which would be lean, soft tissue. So it's lean, mm. meaning it's not fat. It's soft, meaning it's not bone. Uh, but it's kind of all the tissues left in that category. 
Uh, MRI is distinct from everything we've talked about so far because it's not a molecular level assessment. It's what we call an organ tissue assessment. And these are the assessments people kind of think in. These are the assessments that give you actual adipose tissue, skeletal muscle, kind of distinct things on the body that you could actually anatomically like dissect off a cadaver, for example. Um, so MRI Cada- would... Cadaver being a body with no skin, just for everybody. Uh, right. Yes, a, a dead person. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah. I spent a year dissecting cadavers, so I always like yeah. uh, relating things back to cadavers. But No, no, I, I, apparently that's the best way, right, to actually check your body fat is just to get a scalpel and just cut all your skin off. Yeah, yeah. there's a, there's a joke. You might die, though. The only way to truly measure body composition is, yeah, dissection of cadaver. And everything else really is just estimation when, when the person's mm-hmm. still alive. Um, but, yeah, an MRI, you could go in and they could... Uh, and we have one here on campus I'm hoping hoping to use in some future work, but um, we could go in and assess the actual volume of your biceps brachii muscle, for example. We're talking about the actual anatomical muscle. Um, so within that, there's a lot of protein, there's a lot of water, but there are things like intramuscular lipid. Uh, but if we're talking about athletics, say physique, this is what we typically think in and what we deal in. We're like, oh, I want my deltoids to be bigger. We're talking about a specific anatomical component. We're not saying necessarily like, oh, I want to have more molecules of fat-free mass mm. wherever they occur mm. in my body so kind of a contrast there dexa is still one of those molecular level assessments with with the caveats that since it is an imaging technique you can look at specific regions um, whereas mri is a true organ tissue where we can assess skeletal muscle tissue or skeletal muscle as a organ um, just as one added complexity there are prediction equations um, that have been developed with dexa and mri together where they've brought people in They've done, say, whole body MRI to look at their skeletal muscle mass. So actual skeletal muscle you could anatomically isolate. And then also performed a DEXA scan and then created an equation um, where you can input the DEXA variables and it will predict the MRI skeletal muscle. So there are things like prediction equations that will kind of bridge between these different levels of assessment. Um, but kind of looking at them individually, they're sort of in, in distinct categories. Mm. So then... I do know because I've done DEXA before as part of like some genome sequencing study and they they weren't obviously checking my body fat, but it was part of the, part of the benefit, I guess. So the reason I went, um, how did they gave me a body fat, they gave me a body fat percentage. How do they calculate my water weight? Was that just, do they just have, I would assume they just have a stock, um, like, okay, you're this weight or this height, so you probably have this percentage body with water. So we're just going to give you a body fat percentage so you're happy. Yeah, so DEXA, they actually, if you look through any DEXA outport, there won't be any body water. And that was kind of my um, my question for people who say DEXA is like the standalone uh, gold standard. Mm-hmm. It doesn't really take that into account. So kind of as mentioned, we have all, say, all the pixels of body mass on this DEXA image. We take out the bone pixels we take out the fat pixels, then everything else is lean soft tissue. So a lot of that, everything else is water, um, but not all of it. Some of it is protein, um, mm. uh, protein, glycogen. Uh, so for example, getting back to that acute changes in carbohydrate intake, we know that we can potentially trick DEXA by having more food in our GI tract or manipulating carbohydrate content of the diet, uh, for example. So um, yeah, so DEXA doesn't have a true accounting of body water. And again, it's not saying DEXA is bad. DEXA is a great individual tool, but it's no no tool is perfect. Yeah, that, that, that makes sense why the practitioner told me, because rugby is uh, really big in Ireland, and it's a professional sport here. I think it is in the U.S. as well, just not 
not as big as other sports, but they they told me that I got because I was maybe three weeks out from a show, and I I think I might have came in at five. They they said like I was five or six or something, and they said there was there was one person who was leaner, and they said he was five percent body fat at one hundred and twenty five kilos, and like Ooh. I was thinking in my head is like I don't know if Ronnie Coleman was even that lean and that big, <laughs> so how is he a, a tested rugby player at five percent body fat? It's like that would be the an IFBB pro bodybuilder. So it's obviously uh, you know huge errors or assumptions I should say that they're making. Yes, yeah, no that that is a. Um suspiciously low body fat at that body yeah. mass <laughs> yeah yeah especially for somebody who's drug tested yeah but, um what about then uh, and probably one of the most frequently used and cost effective ones is skin fold mm-hmm. uh, assessments i i only personally realized how i hadn't hadn't really been doing them uh for a long time because i haven't been a in-person personal trainer for a long time but i, I may have done it a couple of times years ago but then having done a proper accreditation i realized how actual difficult it how actually difficult it is and how accurate and calibrated the equipment needs to be and then looking at some research just showing how poor perhaps um some of the results are from people who aren't trained but it would be good to kind of hear your thoughts about skin fold assessments and what the pros and cons are yeah so I'll say you mentioned the isac certification that's excellent and if you have someone who's well trained in skin folds and they have um, good enough equipment. So typically not the $12 plastic ones or 12 euro plastic ones online. Um, it, they, they can be a really useful assessment. Uh, I like to think about assessments uh, kind of on, on multiple categories. One is the scalability uh, and kind of re- repeatability site to site. So this would be an advantage, for example, of something like DEXA that for a given DEXA model, like across sites, you'd expect very similar results. Um, skin folds are challenging. If, if you have one person performing the assessments and they're well-trained and they're performing the assessments on the individual over time with the same equipment, um, you've minimized a few major sources of error, one being the assessor and their level of expertise, one being the equipment, um, and so on. Uh, so skin folds can be very useful. I'll, I'll back a little, a little bit and say they're kind of interesting in terms of actual assessment because what you're grabbing is kind of this, this double layer of skin and subcutaneous tissue, um, subcutaneous uh, fat there. Um, so if we think about it back to kind of the molecular and organ tissue level, we're grabbing kind of an organ tissue level thing where there's something anatomically kind of dispersed across our body, the, the skin and subcutaneous fat that we're assessing at certain locations. Um, however, what you do with it, what most people do with those values after they assess these thicknesses are to plug them into an equation that would predict body density and then predict body fat from that. So in that transition to body density and body fat, we've kind of taken what was originally sort of a organ tissue level assessment because we're dealing with kind of an anatomical structure on the body and turned it into a molecular level assessment. Um, so my actual recommendation for skin folds is to not do those next two steps, but to use the raw skin fold thicknesses. Um, some people don't find that satisfying because they want that percentage. Like I want to be single digit body fat and that's what they're thinking of. Uh, but especially if you're talking the physique realm, like say say for you, Adam, um, that outcome of subcutaneous thickness at a site that's directly relevant to your leanness and you know potential for for competitive success. So, I think if you have um, someone who's well trained, and you know ideally they they may have ISAC or certification like that, but if not, um, a lot of a lot of practice, and I'll have a few more notes on that in a second. But uh, someone who's well trained with decent equipment. 
um, performing the assessments over time and looking at the raw skin folds. I think that can be really useful when used in tandem with um, body mass measurements, maybe another simple and expensive technique like um, circumferences. So for example, at a given site, if you're seeing that the skin fold thickness is decreasing over time and you're maintaining the circumference at a site, um, you could potentially be encouraged that, okay, I may be seeing fat loss and maintenance or even a slight increase in lean mass to, to offset this slight fat loss. So mm. I'm, I'm a fan of that pairing assessment, simple body mass, decent skin folds and flexible circumferences in terms of sort of a, a low resource setting, or you don't have access to all this technology. I think you can make an argument that would be better than venturing into the realm of bioimpedance and some of those things that can be um, tricked to leave a little more uh, easily even day to day. Um, so the one thing I'll say, if, if someone is not able to do the, the ISAC certification, or even if they do that, uh, if you're dealing with a practitioner, say your practitioner listening to this and you're assessing clients, um, I, I would recommend just collecting some of your own reliability data. And this doesn't have to be intense data analysis, but if you have a group of clients that you can assess multiple times, say on back-to-back -back days, so perform all assessments one day, perform them the next day, and do that in a number of individuals, you can get a sense of um, just based on day-to-day -day variability or, or minor differences in your technique, uh, you can get a sense of how much error you'd expect. So maybe you say like, okay, I'm seeing differences of up to 0 0.3 millimeters at the site from one day to the next day when I know no true change has occurred. So when I'm interpreting longer term changes, when say I've had four weeks between assessment, if I see a change that's smaller than say that, uh, you know, three uh, millimeters or 0 0.3 millimeters, uh, then, then I have to be thinking, okay, it's possible this is just error of the technique or the device. Uh, in contrast, if you're seeing a change larger than that, you can be a little more confident that a, a real change might have occurred. Um, so even mm. with simple techniques, there are ways you can kind of uh, science it up if you want to just make your interpretation a little stronger and communicate effectively to your client or to yourself if you're performing assessments on yourself. Uh, to, to provide some context of, yeah, we're pretty confident this is a real change or, you know, directionally, this maybe doesn't look great, but the magnitude's so small that this very well could just be error of the device. Yeah, I, I often wonder, like, how, how useful it is, because obviously we can talk about, you, you touched on a little bit, we can talk about, you know, how accurate is something at a single point in time, which is fine, like if you do it once, but how how useful is telling you your body fat once or your body composition, it's more so like the it, how accurate is the, is it to changes over time. Um, and like, and then even, even with that, it's like, if you are say a bodybuilder or want to do, or just want to get to a certain level of leanness, if it was, if it told you that you were at a body fat percentage that you wanted to get to, it's like, would that make you happy with the result? And because it's 3% less than you thought, or is it that you're looking in the mirror and you're like, I'm not lean enough. It doesn't matter what it says. I need to just get leaner. Um, and for probably most people listening to this, uh, they're probably going to be trained at least haven't trained a few years and and not using anabolics. So probably weight loss is, is a good proxy for whether you're getting leaner because you're not going to be growing into the show, so to speak, is, or growing a lot of muscle and losing fat at the same time, at least in my experience. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. And, and then just the final question on these body composition assessments is like, and I think you probably mentioned there, but in terms of like tracking muscle mass changes over time, what's, what would be the the best way to do that because uh, like i know that there's loads of research that uh, that can be questionable because of 
just because of these errors, the, the margins of error in these things. Like when we're talking about, like we've seen some research on recomposition with really high protein amounts, and you're like wondering, are some of them even feasible, um, or is it just noise in the in the data collection? Um, and and often muscle mass takes a very 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 long time to build, especially if you've, you know, you're older than twenty two and you've been lifting a few years. So how do you, how do you track these? Because like it takes months or or even longer to actually notice something. Yeah, that's a great question. So I'll I'll answer from the practitioner perspective. Just one note about research, since you mentioned some of that. Um, yeah, definitely. If you're consuming research. Some things you can look for to be kind of a, a critical consumer. Uh, you can look to see if the authors reported their reliability data. So kind of what I was just describing. Mm. Um, labs should ideally have some of that data where they say, you know, the technical error of body fat percentage assessments with our DEXA scanner in our lab is one and a half percent, something like that. And then you can look and see what magnitude of change are they reporting? Is that change larger than the error of their device or not? Uh, and that really should be done on a specific um, same reason I said, you know, each individual practitioner would ideally do this. Uh, it's not useful just for a practitioner to look up and be like, oh, the normal error for skin folds is 2%. It's like that was someone mm. somewhere else different with different people they're assessing, different equipment and so on. Uh, the same is true for research. Each lab should ideally report like this is how reliable our, our measurements are. Mm. Um, and then, of course, considering the, the technology, if it's they were using a cheap bioimpedance scale and they reported recomp, more questionable than if they were using DEXA or they had DEXA and also some ultrasound measurements showing increases in muscle thickness or something like that. So that's kind of for mm. interpreting research. In terms of practitioners, again, I'll focus on, say, um, um, lower equipment resource settings. Say you have access to just the, the simple items I mentioned before, flexible tape measure, um, calipers, and body mass. Um, then, you know, I, I think there are a number of factors you should consider. Adam, you mentioned one, the, the training status and kind of having an expectation of like what is realistic at this point. If this person has a training age of like 10 years of consistent resistance training and they're in a weight loss phase, um, what are we expecting? We're not, we're not expecting like, you know, substantial muscle hypertrophy in this eight-week cut leading up to a particular event or something like that. Um, I think you can pair, sort of as mentioned, you could pair circumferences and skin folds uh, if someone wanted to get more technical, there are actually equations where you can take skin folds on the limbs kind of at four sites, so on each side of the limb, mm. and uh, also in, insert the um, circumference of the limb, and it will actually give you a prediction of the muscle cross-sectional area. To me, that's just a way of sciencing up what, what you could do more simply, which is um, looking at, again, the, the subcutaneous thickness, the skin fold thickness, uh, and the circumference measurement and just making logical interpretations. Um, mm -hmm. So if you're seeing, uh, a, again, in, in say, a um, maintenance scenario, if, if you're seeing, um, sorry, I lost, I lost my train of thought there a little bit, but if, if you were, say, in the weight loss scenario uh, and you have an individual and you're seeing a decrease in their skin folds uh, and also a decrease in the circumference, you'd have to, you know, that would take some judgment. You're like, okay, how much can I infer about this between, you know, is muscle being lost? Is it not? Um, in less trained individuals, it'd be quite a bit easier because you might see something like, say the limb circumference has not changed, but the skin folds have clearly decreased. Then you might be like, okay, I feel more confident recomp is occurring because one, that's theoretically like reasonable for this less trained individual. Um, two, the fat mass at this particular location seems to be decreasing or the, the subcutaneous thickness. Um, but we're also maintaining circumference. So something is contributing to the maintenance or circumference, which will 
um, kind of guess is skeletal muscle. So mm. I, I think you can't make logical inferences. You can't know for, you know, you can't know for sure. Everything's an estimation. We're talking about like pretty um, basic techniques that aren't looking, they're not an imaging technique. They're not MRI, not DEXA or ultrasound, um, but you can still kind of make logical inferences. And then I'm always a proponent of also considering things like, of course, performance. If you have someone who's tracking their diet, what you know about their diet and not making a, a large programming shift on the nutrition or training side, just because of body comp assessments at a point in time. So even though I'm pro body composition assessment, um, I I'd say to be a little slow to make dramatic changes when you see like one assessment that you're not thrilled with. Mm. Yeah. That, that makes a lot of sense. Um, yeah. So I, I guess turning from the body composition assessment, we, we t analysis, we, we talked a little bit just before about something else, um, which is completely different, but I know you've done some research in is that intermittent fasting. So, and I know that some of the, some of the data that you collected or some of the, the discussion that you had around that is around body composition. Um, so I guess, I don't know where I came first across body intermittent fasting. Maybe it was when, you know, Rob Wolf, I think it was, or wh whoever invented this bulletproof coffee, um, uh, many years ago that was, but when that, that kind of went hand in hand a little bit with intermittent fasting or actually, no, I remember it was from uh, Martin Birkin in, in lean gains when he used to have this very, when, when information was basically just on blogs and forums and he had this and he was ripped, like he was single digit body fat and he was pretty jacked. And I think he's from Norway or one of those Scandinavian countries. And he would have this protocol where he'd fast, but he would have like branched chain amino acids every couple hours for, for some reason. Um, and, and then he would eat like in the evening and he believed that like, well, very, it's very rudimentary misunderstanding of physiology, but basically you've got, you're burning fat when you're, when you're not eating, which is true to the most part, if you're not doing anything. Um, but then equating that to fat loss. And then a lot of people have got great results, um, doing intermittent fasting because, well, I'll let you, I'll let you talk about it a bit more, but then even recently, I think there's been another spike in the popularity of, of maybe not just intermittent fasting, but fasting as well, like, um, five, two or alternate day fasting for, amongst people who are, um, say pro longevity or trying to optimize their health. Um, it's funny. They never really seem to understand what they're trying to optimize for, but just health. Um, and, and then obviously when we're talking long, long term, there's also a lot of I won't say data, but, um, acknowledgement of fasting within religious communities around the world. So yeah, I know I just talked for like five minutes there, but it would be, it'd be great to understand kind of what you guys found and then maybe mention or touch on some of those things that I've talked about there and your thoughts. Yeah, I'll just, I'll, I'll give a, a brief summary. So to start, there's some disagreement on terminology, um, but I, and, and several others view intermittent fasting as kind of a broad umbrella term for programs that involve recurring fasts that are longer than your typical overnight fast. Um, of course, what is a typical overnight fast that, that varies individual to individual. There are people who follow a program, just a dietary schedule of eating unintentionally that very closely resembles an intentional intermittent fasting protocol, but they're not doing it intentionally. So are they intermittent fasting just by default or are they just, they skip breakfast and they don't eat after dinner naturally, you know, up for debate. So one of the major subtypes, which is, I think, the most popular currently, is time-restricted feeding or time-restricted eating. Um, Martin Burkham's stuff you mentioned was kind of in this realm of there's a particular window of time in which you ingest all your calories. 
Another major type you also mentioned, alternate day fasting, which has this alternating day structure where you have kind of normal eating days and then either complete fasting days or modified um, fasting days, which really just mean you're, you're eating, but a very small amount, typically a single meal. Um, and then there's kind of a group of programs, uh, including five, two and others, which, which I'd call periodic fasting. Uh, these sometimes have less frequent fasts, but they are a little bit longer. Um, sometimes this could be as simple as like a 24 hour fast one or two times a week. So they're kind of some distinct programs, but most of our work has focused on time restricted eating. We've done a few different protocols, but most of our studies have used a relatively um, traditional time-restricted eating program that's similar to what a lot of people do, and that's a approximately seven to eight-hour feeding window that starts about midday and goes till, say, mid-evening. Um, for many individuals, they find it fairly easy to skip breakfast, um, potentially not too difficult to cut off nighttime eating. Um, after mid-evening. So in general, even for participants who come into this consuming breakfast every day, in general, we haven't seen too much subjective difficulty with people making a transition to this program. Um, from a big picture perspective, we have seen um, that reducing the feeding window down to about seven and a half hours a day when there is a resistance training stimulus and when sufficient protein intake um, is prescribed. Uh, we haven't seen detriments uh, in terms of skeletal muscle maintenance or actually increases. So we had a, a the last study we ran here was in resistance trained females and we saw uh, muscle hypertrophy via ultrasound assessments as well as increases in fat-free mass from a four compartment model. Um, and we saw the, the same increases in individuals who are eating about in, in over the course of about seven and a half hours each day as compared to individuals who are eating over the course of about 13 hours each day. Um, these were resistance-trained individuals. They weren't, say, physique competitors. So I think there's still – I still recommend caution at the highest levels of training status, whether that's in sport, uh, like traditional sport or in physique sports. Um, but I'd say I feel reasonably confident that for your general resistance-trained population, if uh, protein intake is high enough uh, and you're not doing like a dramatic cut of um, calories below maintenance calories – uh, that you can see maintenance of uh, lean mass or or even lean mass accretion if you you know have the proper programming. Of course, we we designed what we view as a evidence based resistance training program. We had supervised training. We had our strength conditioning specialists on our participants pushing them to succeed. So that that's a caveat. It's very good from the experimental control standpoint, but that's a caveat that if there were say like decreases in motivation or this or that, they may not have shown up in the context of a, a research study. Um, what do you call that effect again? Where it's like uh, just some, the bias where you're in your lab and you're getting like shouted at or whatever. Is that, oh, is, like is there observer, a name for that? Um, there, there is that I'm I'm blanking on at the moment. But um, hmm. yeah, it is something we uh, is it observer bias. I don't know. It's been I'm a long not, time since I'm I've not, had to define I, I, these. Yeah, I've, I've heard other ones where it's like there was like young males and then the young females, and like of course they're going to try and impress them, you know. Yeah, and and, out versus if you're training by yourself and. Uh, in Texas in the middle of winter in a big shed. Yes. In your back garden. Yep. It's freezing. That's true. We, you know, as a side note, we've talked about that with, we do a number of pre-workout studies and we've talked about that too. And I, I sort of am on the opinion we're systematically underselling pre-workouts because even when they're having a placebo, we're like yelling at them and encouraging them and all this, but in the real world, and they also don't know if they've consumed a pre-workout or not. Um, cause we, this is a placebo controlled trial, but in the real world, if you normally take a pre-workout and you're out of pre-workout and go to the gym, you know, you haven't taken it and it mm. very well could affect your training. So kind of a side note, but you know, there's no perfect way to address everything you want, uh, in a study. So, yeah. 
Um, yeah, so that's kind of the, the very big picture um, summary of our findings. I think there is a point, uh, a, a say, daily eating window that would be too short to support optimal muscle hypertrophy. I don't know where it is for sure. Again, down to seven and a half hours in trained but not elite um, individuals. Uh, everything seemed to be fine. And I mean, we were supplementing with protein. They were up at um, the average, I think it was 1.6 grams per kilogram um, body mass per day. Uh, you know, so w- with several of those caveats, we didn't see detriments. But I think mm-hmm. at some point, of course, if you took it all the way down to the more extreme intermittent fasting programs like OMAD or one meal a day, um, I think you'd be hard pressed to say that that would be uh, equivalent for, say, yeah. hypertrophy outcomes as someone consuming equally spaced protein over the course of, you know, 12 yeah, hours a day. There, there obviously has to be a point because I, I used to think in really black and white terms. And uh, I remember years ago when people used to say, well, weekly calories are most important. Then uh, I would ask, well, what if you ate all your calories for seven days in one day? Would, yeah. you, would you have the same body composition? It's like, well, definitely not, but no, nobody would do that. So, right. I mean, there has to be a point. And then, like, interesting what you say about, like, in, in your, some of your findings, there's no benefit, but then you did give the caveat that you probably recommend for people who are more trained because, and that's probably because of some of the more acute, let's say, I won't say most hypertrophy measures but say proxies such as muscle protein synthesis and we see that when we have multiple feedings a day it's probably superior but we'd probably need to extrapolate that across a year to see if there's any actual and then we would have to account for the the challenges with the measurement error as well so it's it's probably very very difficult so it's like it's hard to say um but it is but, but i yeah yeah, no, you're, mm. you're right. And even in the study, when the individuals were eating over seven and a half hours, they were getting like three and a half to four feedings, each containing a sufficient bolus of protein to maximally stimulate muscle protein synthesis. So if you look at some of those daily recommendations, it's often like, oh, yeah, in three to five, three to six, you know, something mm. like that range. So um, we were actually consistent with some of those recommendations. Everything was just pushed together a little bit. So um, I, I agree. Yeah, some of my caution for athletes is one, you know, the the more you have everything optimized, uh, you know, and the more, say, your your livelihood or um, well-being depends on your performance or body count yeah, or what yeah. have you, you know, the more cautious you should be. Um, mm. I think intermittent fasting can be a great strategy for those who, say, want to reduce or control energy intake and they don't really want to count calories or don't want to be too meticulous about it. Um, I think another reason it's popular is because you can combine it with any type of eating strategy. So you have your people who are like, IF and keto, IF and high carb, IF, but otherwise following normal sports nutrition recommendations. Um, it, liver, not inherently, liver king. Yeah, liver king. That's a, that's a whole different <laughs> deal. Um, but you're not inherently messing with what people eat. So most people, I've it seems to me from our research, most people don't have a horrible time like kind of shifting when they eat a little bit. Um, if you're not messing with what they eat beyond saying like, okay, here have some extra protein powder to make sure mm. make sure you have enough. Mm. And then. What what are your thoughts? Or just just on that note as well, like another thing that I've when I've been diving into the research a bit was like when we do look at those acute muscle protein synthesis effects of like multiple feedings, often it's just like the subjects just have whey protein, and it's like who eats just whey protein? If you're intermittent fasting and you have like uh, I don't know half a kilo of beef, you know at seven p.m., are you really like fasting quote unquote until I don't know twelve? 12 p.m. the next day or is actually is that digesting and is that muscle protein synthesis elongated for like six hours because it takes ages for a 
big ribeye to digest in your stomach but um yeah but yeah i mean absolutely that's a that's a fantastic mm. point and it, it's definitely true it's like when are you actually entering the post-absorption mm. state so you, you're right if your last meal of the day is a big whey protein shake you'll enter uh the post-absorptive state much sooner than if you if you had that large ribeye so that's a great question um of like how many hours mm. of a 16 hour daily fast how many yeah. of those hours is your body actually in you know true what we'd say physiologically fasting mm. state and that's a good good segue into the last question is like i mentioned a bit about autophagy and like the health benefits or at least perceived health benefits of of fasting I've heard, and I haven't looked into the, the research myself at some point, hopefully I can get the time to do it, is that like calorie restriction is, uh, you know, there's something to do with longevity in terms of, I, I don't know if then it gets, you know, reduced mTOR, it gets quite questionable whether what's the trade-off between reduced mTOR activity and then sarcopenia and all these kind of things. But what are your thoughts on autophagy and uh, you know did you guys look at that at all or or do you have any thoughts on whether that actually does reduce markers of say inflammation or whatever we're trying to track with its crp or interleukin-6 or and then does that have any impact on disease or and i guess that's what people mean with longevity i mean disease and, and maybe health span yeah so great questions we we have not looked at markers of autophagy in our studies there is one uh, well, I guess two studies I was an author on collaborating with Antonio Paoli in his lab in Italy, where we did see some benefits um, of a, a time-restricted feeding program that was designed to be equal calories. In, in free-living settings, it's impossible to know for sure, you know, unless you have the people kind of locked mm. here and providing all their food. But we did see some benefits on inflammatory markers um, with a caveat that we also saw decreases in testosterone that persisted up to a year. Um, was that was that independent of of calorie restriction? So it, it, it we, the there was a dietitian that prescribed the calorie intake, and like based on dietary records for the first two months of the study, there was not a difference in dietary intake. But did they lose, um, lose any weight? They lost body fat. Yeah, so a very small amount of weight. They lost body fat. <laughs> um, so again, that's one of those like to have that fully verified that's like okay at equal calories we saw fat mm. loss we'd have to have them in a, a metabolic work completely locked yeah. in there so um and then when we followed those participants for an additional 10 months then a reduction in energy intake did show up on the dietary record so it's possible that that could have been present in the first eight weeks even though it didn't show up on the um kind of dietitian assisted dietary records mm. um so in terms of autophagy and all that it's a it's a hairy area in humans there's a there's a good theoretical rationale in the model organisms like up through rodents um some unique physiological benefits that have been seen beyond just calorie restriction this also applies to related areas like meal timing shifting more of your calories early in the day um, that's a really hot area in time restricted eating right now is this early time restricted eating where mm. not only do you restrict the window but you place the calories earlier in the day or the feeding window earlier in the day where our bodies are typically a little bit better at metabolizing um, nutrients. So there in humans, there have been some very short-term trials that have shown possible benefits in like very specific populations for um, say early time restrictive feeding programs or intermittent fasting programs in general. Some of these have shown slight benefits in select markers of autophagy. 
Um, but there's not much we can say right now in terms of long-term disease risk, um, lifespan. Again, in model mm. organisms, we've seen that because you can have model organisms whose lifespans are short enough that you can follow them till they yeah. die and see how long they actually live, and you can keep them locked in a cage. It's just not a type of research we can do in humans. So I think we're quite a ways from having a satisfying answer on that. And even at that point, uh, you could argue how satisfying the answer will be because we'll never get the data that would really convince people, which is – you know, completely unethical. We took these babies from birth and like locked them in a cage mm. and like, you know, they intermittent fasted their whole life and they lived to be a hundred, whereas the control group lived to be 80. Um, so, I yeah. mean, there's no way it's too complex, all the environmental factors involved. So, um, I'd say it's a hot area of research. We'll, we'll see, um, whether or not some of these items, um, you know, related to autophagy, inflammation, health seem to be pointed in a beneficial direction, or if this will be another thing that just didn't make the leap from say rodents to humans in terms of the potential benefits. Mm. Yeah. It, it will be very interesting to see because it's like, uh, it's free, right? It's just not yeah. eat. Um, and I guess that like some of the major benefits of, or probably the most major benefit is, uh, it helps you not be overweight and that probably is the biggest. Right. Yeah, exactly. So I think, yeah, I think people maybe are too quick to chase, chase autophagy and molecular mechanisms where you're like, okay, is this for you a strategy that helps reduce what we know are disease risk factors, say like components of metabolic syndrome, say mm. maintaining weight loss or maintaining a healthy body weight and composition and so on. So yeah, I think sometimes people chase the, the more sciencey molecular answer under the hood when really, the, the big picture implications, you know, staring them in the face of like, oh yeah, this is a good weight management strategy for me, or no, it's not because it exacerbates my, you know, binge yeah. eating tendencies or whatever it may be. Mm. Yeah. Very, very interesting. Thank, thank you so much for coming on, Grant. What's, um, what are you up to these days? Is there anything that's kind of keeping you up at nighttime? It's exciting. And, uh, and where can people find out more about you and your work? Yeah, the, what mostly keeps you up at night is my my little kids. But um, other, other than that, uh, yeah, they can you can find more information about me. I have a personal website, which is just my name, GrantTinsley.com. Um, I have information about my lab, um, my CV, for those of you, if, if you're in the academic realm and curious, uh, links to my publications on PubMed and, and other uh, websites. I also have some links to social media. Um, I'm mostly active on Instagram, and I do usually post uh, both about the shop gym in my backyard and about academic research we have going on here. So if you're interested in these topics, feel free to um, give me a follow there on Instagram. I'm at uh, Grant Tinsley, PhD. They'll be all in the show notes. Thanks Perfect. a lot so much for coming on. Absolutely. Thanks for having me, Adam.